It's Palm Sunday, Passover for the Jews, one of the great religious festivals of the time, and Jerusalem is like a powder keg. The population of Jerusalem at the turn of the first century is probably around 40,000 people, but for a major religious holiday like Passover, it could swell to 250,000 people, which means that the city was crowded, crowded with all sorts of people, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Add into the mix that it's a time of great political unrest. The people are tired of being under occupation. There's always the chance or maybe the hope that one of the fringe groups will start a revolt. Some of the people want the revolt to happen. Other people want to preserve the peace. Others are doing quite well with the status quo. Most people just want to be left alone. The political situation is so tense that the Roman governor moves from his capital 75 miles away to Jerusalem to be in residence for the week, and he brings about a thousand troops with him. And just having that many soldiers in the city raises the tension exponentially. Later on in the week, the story expands to include lots of different people, but at this point, there are really three main characters in the story. There are the disciples and the crowds, because the gospel writers really don't draw a distinction between them, and it's hard to tell who's going on, who's part of the, the crowd at that time. There's the Pharisees, and there's Jesus. We're going to start and end with Jesus because, well, he's Jesus, and it just seems right. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever written. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. So Jesus has just been to Jericho, and he's coming up to Jerusalem. Jericho is about 850 feet below sea level. Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet above sea level. So one always goes up to Jerusalem. And as you're coming up the hill from Jericho, you can see the Judean hills in the distance. And as you grow closer and just on the other side of the crest of the hill of the Mount of Olives is the city of Jerusalem. But as you're coming up the backside of the hill of the Mount of Olives, there's a couple of little villages there, Bethphage and Bethany. And when Jesus gets there, he gets a donkey. Why? Because he's sending a message about what he's up to. There's two important things that are going to happen. And they might seem really obscure to us, but every single person who was there at the time knew exactly what was going on. First, the donkey. It says it was a colt, but trust me, it's a donkey. Has echoes of David. David was Israel's greatest king. He reigned during some of the most glorious days of Israel. And he's the founder of the royal house, the house of David. And David had a mule. And so they were used to the king riding a mule. Now, David had a mule, this is a donkey. I don't think I could tell the difference between the two. David's son, Solomon, was seen as David's successor when he was presented on David's mule. 
You can read this in 1 Kings 1.33. So here's Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. What imagery does this suggest? This is the new king. This is the new son of David. That's the first thing that's going on. Secondly, there's a passage in the prophet Zechariah. We've been talking in the Lenten sermon series about exile. And the people, after 70 years, began to return back from the exile in Babylon. But they have this sense that even though they're back in the land, the exile isn't quite over. There's this kind of already but not yet part of it. Uh, for starters, the people in the land and the people around don't want them there. And that's quite a story that you can read about in Ezra and Nehemiah. And the prophet Daniel prophesied that even though they're back from exile, it was going to last a little bit longer. And then there develops this belief that springs out of the prophet Zechariah, that the return from exile will finally be complete when the Davidic king rides into Jerusalem. Listen to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, that's how I know it was really a donkey, not a colt. So this is what Jesus is communicating as he comes into Jerusalem. The fulfillment of these prophecies. Here's the successor of David. Here's the return from exile. But here's the question. Is the crowd picking up what Jesus is putting down? Or are they missing the point? Verse 36, as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So like I said, you're coming up from Jericho to Jerusalem and you crest around the Mount of Olives and this is what you see. This picture was taken from the top of the Mount of Olives and there when you hit the top of it is the city of Jerusalem laid out in front of you. The Temple Mount, it is right there. And as he gets to the top and begins to come down, that's when the people gather around and Luke says, they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Peace in heaven. Because the king has come back, they're going to have peace. But what they mean by that, what they're really saying is that Jesus is about to bring them a military victory. And when he has overthrown Rome, and Israel has its own kingdom again, that's when they'll have peace. Peace in heaven. The other gospels, however, sometimes have the people saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, we probably think because of the context and some of the songs that we sing, Hosanna, loud Hosanna, we probably think that Hosanna might be like a synonym for hallelujah, that it might mean praise the Lord, only it doesn't. Hosanna means save us, please. So what they're really talking about here is here comes this person that they think is going to overthrow the government and they're literally laying their cloaks and waving and shouting up and down going, finally, he's here to save us. And this is where the misunderstanding begins. This is where the misunderstanding that ultimately leads to hatred begins. Because all these people that are gathered around and shouting these things, they didn't really understand the plan and the purpose of God. It wasn't to change the government. 
It was to change people's hearts. David's greatness wasn't because of all of his military successes. David's greatness was because he was a friend of God. Solomon's greatness was not in his wealth, his power, or even the numbers of wives he had. Solomon's greatness came when he followed God. And so the people begin to miss this point. They miss what God is doing because they had overlaid their own desires, their own preferences, their own wants on top of what God's plan was. Did you ever wonder how the same crowd that cried Hosanna on Sunday was crying crucify him on Friday? It's because they figured out they were wrong about Jesus. And they realized that Jesus didn't bring them what they wanted. Unfortunately, what they wanted wouldn't bring them what they needed. They thought they knew what would bring them peace, but they missed what would really bring them peace. That's the crowd. The second group of people that are there are the Pharisees. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Why do the Pharisees say this? Well, it might be because they were just trying to keep the peace. Jerusalem is a powder keg. One little thing could set it off and the army could come in and who knows what would happen when you let an army loose. But more likely, the triumphal entry was offending their sense of what was right and what was wrong. They were basically saying, stop this ridiculous display. You are obviously not the Messiah. We have no idea what's going on here, but this is not part of God's plan. Now, I always feel like we need to cut the Pharisees a little bit of slack. I feel like we need to tread a little carefully with them because they usually come out to be the bad guys. But if truth were to be told, I think the Pharisees is probably the group that we might most easily identify with. These are the people who have a strong sense of right and wrong. These are the people who have a really serious desire to please God, and they really want to live according to God's purposes. But somewhere along the way, they lost sight of what the most important thing was. They got sidetracked, and they missed what God was doing. They substituted what they thought should be done for what God was actually doing. And we can do this too. Think about this for a second. Is politics more important than the gospel? Is economic theory more important than the gospel? Is your view on the environment more important than the gospel? Is differing on how to address racial issues in our country more important than the gospel? Is how to help the poor and who is worthy of compassion more important than the gospel? I ask those things because over the past several years in many churches, what people thought about those things became more important than God's plan and purposes. Sometimes I think we lost what was the most important thing. This is also the final appearance of the Pharisees. And what do we find them doing? Completely missing what God is doing. Now Jesus continues down the Mount of Olives. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. 
The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So this next picture that you're looking at is the Palm Sunday route. It's how you get from the top of the Mount of Olives down into the Kedron Valley and then up to the Temple Mount. And you'll notice, you can see a wall and that's where the, the road goes. And next to that wall is a big arrow pointing down at a black and white structure. That's called the Church of Dominus Flavit. It means the Lord wept. And now this picture is the iconic view from the inside of the church. Dominus Flevit means the Lord's wept in Latin. And this, is, this marks the place where Jesus traditionally stopped and wept over Jerusalem. So this is kind of the picture that Jesus has, and now you have it too. And as Jesus looks over that view of the city, now closer, this is what he's thinking. If only, if only you'd known what would bring you peace. It would have kept you from so much suffering. I just think this moment is so poignant. Jesus is looking at people going, you're looking for peace, but you're looking in so many different places. You think you can find it politically. You think you can find it by being in control. You think you can find it in familiar and comfortable religious forms. You think you can find it in money, but you can't and you won't. If only you had seen that. If only you had seen that the only way you'll find peace is to draw close to God. And not much has changed. World leaders think they'll find peace if they can reestablish their empires or enforce their will. Two people who have everything that you think would be peace and happiness have a marriage whose dysfunction is displayed in front of the entire world at an awards show. Talented and wildly successful musicians can't find the peace they need and they kill themselves with drug overdoses, with hearts that weigh twice as much as a normal heart because of the abuse that they have done to their bodies over the years. And we fall into those traps too for looking for what would bring us peace. And all the time, I just get this picture of Jesus weeping, looking out over our lostness, looking out over the things that we chase, thinking that they're going to bring us something good, and ultimately, they don't. All the time, Jesus weeps and says, if only, if only you had known what would bring you peace. But you missed it. And instead of peace, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, which means wholeness, which means being complete, shalom, instead of peace, you'll get exile again. That's part of what Jesus is weeping about. If only you had known what would bring you peace, but instead an army is going to encircle you and they're going to take you out again. Instead of peace, you get exile. And I think that's part of what makes him weep. And here's perhaps the most important thing about this picture. Jesus shows God's posture. Even when we don't get it, even when we lose track of the main thing, even when we lay our grid over God's plan and God's purpose, God's posture is not anger. God laments, God weeps that we will not have the peace that we desperately desire. God wishes better for us. There are two times that are recorded that Jesus cries. One is when Lazarus, his friends, die, and the other is here. Both times 
are when people that he loves are experiencing deep pain, the type of pain that we were never meant to experience. God wishes better for us. And when he sees what's happened to us, whether because we have chosen it or just because of circumstances, God's response is empathy and care. And Holy Week is about what God does so that we can have the peace that we so deeply desire. And then Jesus leaves the overview, Dominus Flevit, and he goes down to the valley and up the other side and goes into the temple. Verse 45, when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer but you have made it a den of robbers. It's so important that this follows in the story after Jesus demonstrates God's compassion because Jesus goes down and what he's doing in the temple is that he's opening up God's house so that everyone can draw near. He's taking away all of the barriers. And then in five days, he breaks the power of sin and death on the cross so that we can come to him so that we can find peace because we're all looking for peace, for shalom, for wholeness, but we have a tendency to look in all the wrong places. If you're lacking peace today, if your life has not turned out the way that you had hoped, if you know that you've made bad choices or a series of bad choices, God feels your pain. God feels it deeply with you and God wants you to come home and experience his peace. If only we could see. So let me ask you three questions. Number one, what are your expectations of Jesus? Number two, where are you looking for peace? And number three, what is God doing that you might be missing?